Welcome to the November Think Anesthesia podcast. This month at Think Anesthesia, we're all about exotic species, and I'm lucky to be joined today by Dr. Renee Schott, a veterinarian and certified wildlife rehabilitator who is the medical director at the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center of Minnesota, where she leads a team of veterinarians and technicians who have seen over 18,000 animals already this year. Dr. Schott also teaches classes at the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine and is a course instructor for the International Wildlife Rehabilitation Council and lectures on wildlife rehabilitation and medicine all over the USA. She also finds time somehow to do relief work at the Minnesota Zoo. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Schott. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So let's start from the beginning. What led you to pursue a career in wildlife rehab and how did you get into the field? Yeah, it's, I wish it was a more exciting story. <laughs> I remember being in middle school and I wanted to be a lawyer. So then I went and shadowed a lawyer and saw how boring it was. So I'm like, no. And then I was decent at math and math, uh, science and math. So I was like, oh, maybe I could be a veterinarian. I like animals. And then I saw a show about a veterinarian that worked with wildlife. And I was like, that's what I'm gonna do. And I can be very stubborn. <laughs> so um, I went to, let's see, before vet school and undergrad, I got a job at the Wildlife Sanctuary in Green Bay, Wisconsin, doing their rehabilitation. So I did that for two summers. And then in vet school, I started and ran a wildlife rehabilitation center out of the, their local humane society. So I did that during vet school. After vet school, I spent a year in private practice doing exotics and emergency medicine, and also volunteered at their local wildlife center near Chicago. And then after that, I was really lucky to get this job as a vet at the rehab center here in Minnesota, purely based on my fourth year externship. So the time I spent there as a student, when they had an opening, they gave me a call and I was like, yep, I'm there. <laughs> so basically once you put your mind to something, it tends to happen. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a great story. <laughs> it sounds like a really interesting place, the Wildlife Rehab Center. Could you walk me through the typical, if such a thing exists, day there for a veterinarian? Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things about this field is that there is no typical day, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> my greatest fear, actually, no offense to anyone, but was going into private practice and having to do the same thing over and over and over. So I really like that aspect of wildlife rehabilitation medicine. We never know what's going to come through those front doors. It could be a baby mouse or it could be a 16-year-old pelican. So just anything and everything that's native to Minnesota can, can walk through those doors. And since we're right on the Mississippi Migratory Flyway, it's an amazing breadth of species, especially during migration. So right now there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of birds migrating overhead. <laughs> and we get a good smattering of those to our center, which is why the number of species we see can get up into the you know hundreds and two hundreds range. A typical day for a vet at my center, when we get there early in the morning, the lobby is not open. We do our AM medical rechecks and we do those with the medications so that we're only handling those animals once. So we have the meds, we read the chart, we grab the animal, do our exam, do the medications, put the animal back and then update the chart and any changes we need to make. 
in that respect, the vets are the veterinarians and the rehabilitators for those patients. So we kind of have to have both skills. It's really relatable to exotic medicine where you have to know the husbandry and get that right before you can actually address the medical part. And so that's a lot of what we do. The doors open at 9 a.m. and then admits start coming in. So we start getting barraged with questions from the intake staff about different patients. And sometimes they just have low key questions like what species is this? But a lot of times they're bringing us emergency patients that are actively dying. So then we have to triage and decide, is it worth trying or not? The flip side of this, it's really fun and there's lots of different stuff to do every day, but the release proportion of wildlife rehabilitation is only about a third. And that's if you average all the centers in the country. And so that means two thirds of all the animals we admit are gonna die or be euthanized. And since they're wildlife, we're predators to them. So every day is extremely stressful. So we really want to do all we can to make that decision on admission, use the data and the statistics to look at that patient and say, what are your chances? And if they're not great, just humanely end their suffering. But if they have a chance, then choose them and put them into the rehab process. So admits are coming all throughout the day. And at the same time, we're seeing the rest of our adult rechecks. We're seeing all of our nursery patient rechecks. We're doing procedures, so different types of surgeries and analyzing diagnostics such as radiographs. And then at night, we have more adult animal rechecks. We have vet check concerns, nursery patients that are brought to us throughout the days with emergencies. And finally, when those doors close, we can start wrapping things up for the day. So in the off season, I'll have two vets on to handle that caseload. But during nursery season, our center explodes. We're such a seasonal facility. We'll go from having 200 patients in-house to 1,500 patients in-house in just a few weeks. And that's not considering admissions. That's just the patients we choose to treat. So during the peak season, I have at least four vets on to handle that caseload. That's in addition to the technicians and the rehabilitators and the nursery staff. So it's quite the operation. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. What are some of the surgeries and diagnostics that you're commonly doing with these species? As far as diagnostics, radiographs are by far our most common diagnostic. 80% of the animals that come into rehabilitation have trauma. So a really good full radiographic study is going to tell you a lot about what's going on. So our techs take up to 50 films a day on our patients, which is a lot. In addition to that, every adult we work up gets a blood lead level because we find a lot of our animals, 50% of our possums and a third of our squirrels and half of our swans come in with toxic levels of blood lead. So we are just doing all of the <laughs> lead testing that we can. And then since we're getting blood, often we do a CBC, so our technicians will read that out for us. But we have full diagnostic capabilities, a chemistry machine, electrolyte machine. The techs are really skilled at all species of blood, cytology, culture, sensitivity. We kind of have all of that at our disposal, which is really nice because a lot of our cases are emergency cases and we need those results right away to be able to determine what to do. And then surgeries are going to, and procedures are going to vary. So in the summer, we do a lot of turtle shell repair. Um, we get about 300 aquatic turtles that come in every year hit by cars. So we have to fix the shells that we can. We pin bones. So if there are fractures that are pinnable, we'll pin them. Or if they're smaller bones that a plate is more appropriate, we will plate them. And then the normal sort of bandages and wounds and things like that. Lots of, lots of wounds. The wounds are, at this point, wounds are easy. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you've seen quite a few now in your time. And are there any particular species or groups of animals that you're personally particularly passionate about or really enjoy working with? Yeah, it took me like eight years to decide this. 
<laughs> but I'm, I'm sticking with it. I really, I like these groups. So bats are my favorite. They're just amazing. All the different species we get, we get insectivorous bats, big browns, so silver hairs to tricolor to, we just got our first small footed bat this year, which was really cool. They're so small and in our human brains, we kind of equate them to mice, but they're not, right? They're carnivores and they're really evolutionarily more related to big cats and deer, which is weird, but <laughs> no, they have personalities like cats, I imagine. They're just like little mini fastidious cats. They groom all the time. They're very sensitive. They're super smart and they have so many strikes against them right now that they need all the help they can get. So I really like bats. And then the other species I really like are trumpeter swans. They're giant, they're big. It's the largest bird in North America. And so there's a lot we can do with them. And they also have the personality that I I really enjoy working with. (laughs) Well, you've convinced me to go and work with bats somewhere now, which is nice, I guess. And since we're an anesthesia group, does your answer about the species you like working with change if I ask which ones you like anesthetizing? Oh, of course, of course. (laughs) That's that's such a hard question because I love anesthetizing everything. And, and I love that discovering those individual species differences and what pre-med cocktails are going to work best. So when I started at this center, everything was masked down with ISO and that was it. And it was horrible, right? And it still can be hard to convince people to use a really good balanced pre-med cocktail. So we've now developed differing two and three pre-med cocktails for almost all the species we work with and our anesthesia is so much smoother and they go down easier, they wake up easier, nobody dies anymore under anesthesia. It's just so much fun that that troubleshooting and problem solving and we don't have owners so there's a little less, you know, you, you, you can get over that internal risk. You know, you're worried like, oh, what if this drug is a bad reaction? They never do. <laughs> if you That's stick wonderful. with the low doses and work your way up, you're fine. We just have such safe, safe drugs in our formulary now that it's so nice to play around with that. That's great. And what are some of those drugs that you wouldn't be without now that you've used them? Yeah, midazolam, butorphanol are kind of the staples for most basis of, of the start of my protocols because they're super, super safe, even in, you know, a duck with a liver laceration and only has one good lung, you know, easy to get those. Ketamine is a is coming up third, really, really, really nice and safe drug for a lot of different conditions. And you're like, oh, head trauma. Yeah, you can use some ketamine and head trauma and it's okay. Just don't go with 20 megs per keg, right? <laughs> Keep right. it low um, and have it nice and balanced. And it really supports the blood pressure and helps even out a lot of those sedatives we give. The ketamine will, will help tranquilize them, but also helps support the cardiovascular system. Dexmedetomidine comes in after that, I think. The reversibility of it is, is the main attractant of it yeah it has less side effects than xylazine but it's we still see those blood pressure crashes and heart rate variabilities and in my patients who are maybe this is their first workup with lots of trauma i try not to use it or i go really low on it but when we have stable animals that are just getting their pre-release rads or something then we definitely can throw that in and it'll be good for our turtles we rely on alfaxalone a lot because I don't have a lot to give intramuscular to these species. We're finally working on some other cocktails that we could maybe use, but when I first 
got to this center, it was all propofol. And so if you had a turtle and you couldn't hit a vein, you were kind of like, good luck, <laughs> try to fix that <laughs> shell. And right. then alfaxalone came along and you could give it IM or sub Q and it didn't sting when you gave it and it was amazing. And so we often start out with alfaxalone and then top it off with propofol when they're sedate because that balancing that protocol really wor works well um, for them as well. We're trying to use alfaxalone in more species, but we tend to get in those grooves or in the middle of summer, it's so busy, we're assembly line, you know, trucking it away. So I think as we grow and expand and get more younger vets on board that we'll, we'll use it more and more. That's great. And what about monitoring equipment? How does that differ or what's similar to companion species? Yeah, so monitoring is, is the big, I think, key to doing a lot of these different species. And I... I I'm not that old, I'm a little old, but I'm not super old, but I remember in vet school, all of my vet mentors were like, birds dying under anesthesia, don't anesthetize them. And I'm like, this does not make sense. This is weird. And it was a veterinary technician at the vet school who came out to the rehab center to do anesthesia for me and a great horned owl. And the owl was fine. And I'm like, what did you do? And she's like, I just monitored it. <laughs> adjusted my anesthesia and it makes sense when you look at birds versus mammals the mammals take several minutes to die if they go anoxic or have issues but the birds take 30 seconds to die so if you're only checking your vitals every few minutes you're going to miss that bird crashing and miss those changes in their vitals so really a, re a good good technician or a good assistant who can monitor your vitals appropriately. And then for me, I really like entitled CO2 because I can indirectly guess at the oxygenation level yeah. happening, the perfusion happening, and then adjust my ventilation as needed so that I make sure they're not getting alkalotic or acidotic based on just me breathing enough, not enough or too much. And that usually helps keep the blood pressure stable and the heart rate stable, but then blood pressure would be the next ideal thing to measure. But the whole time my tech has their stethoscope on the animal and is listening to the heart and watching every respiration in and out and making sure that it is appropriate while glancing at the other machines and then adjusting as needed. So all of the different <laughs> types of equipment, but if I had to pick one, it would be probably a CO2 monitor. And I really like the Emma brand because it has the least amount of dead space. It's really nice and small. It's made for first responders and it's super easy to use. That machine has convinced my technicians to use other monitoring equipment. <laughs> That's great to know. And I agree having someone that knows what they're doing and is really just hands-on paying attention to that animal makes all the difference mm -hmm. over every machine basically out there. Yeah. And then are there any tips or tricks that you've come up with working with all these different species or learned from someone else that, that you'd like to share? Yeah. One is something that I just spoke on at ExoticsCon and I put in their proceedings, so it's kind of timely. And it was what I was taught when I started at this center, and I just thought everybody knew about it and did it this way. But when I taught my first shell repair lab at ExoticsCon several years ago, people were like mind blown at this. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so that's why I spoke on it this year, but it is essentially an easy way to make a drill for turtle shell. So you just take your Dremel, you take the smallest collette, that's the top sort of chuck part in your, in your Dremel or your rotary tool. And then you clip off a needle and stick it in there. Oh, and wow. that's it. And it's single use and then it stays sterile. 
you want it, the biggest sort of fallback is people want to just hammer it in and push really hard, but it's bone, so just go slow, a little bit of pressure, slow and steady, and you'll get through that turtle shell, and then you have a, a fresh drill for every hole you need to make. It's, I don't know, easy. <laughs> kind of genius, and I love how simple it is. And then along with the protocols that you've developed, are there any particular resources or books that you turn to when you're anesthetizing a species you're less familiar with? Yeah, I think instead of turning to one specific resource, like we all have carpenters, we all have plums, and those are great, and I do look at those, but I just try to look at more than one resource, right? Look at them all, see the commonalities, look at the citations, right? Because half of them are just Joe Schmo saying it worked, which is fine, that's where we start, but it could be from 1943, and maybe somebody should look at that again. <laughs> So look at, looking at them all and figuring it out. And then in my field, I always think about who does the most of that species. So if I'm talking about seabirds, I call Becky Dewar at International Bird Rescue. If it's a weird aquatic turtle thing, I'll call Sue up in Ontario for her turtle rescue place. So you kind of have all these people in my head too, especially as new drugs come out to say, hey, have you used this? Or what kind of protocol do you like? In this field, we're all just like connecting with each other and helping each other. And so we get our answers really fast. And that's that's kind of what I do. That's great. Veterinary medicine is a surprisingly small world. And it's yes. great to have that network. It is. It is. And finally, just for vets and techs that are interested in learning more about wildlife rehab, are there any courses or programs or where would you recommend they go? Yeah, so it probably depends on where you are and what level of experience that you have in the wildlife field. If you're brand new, just a beginner, have not done anything wildlife, you don't even know what wildlife rehabilitation is. The International Wildlife Rehabilitation Council has a basic course, it's really good. And it kind of just puts out there everything simple, like you need this license and this license, and here are some basic tenants, and here's a book. I really like that course for the, the basic basics. Mm -hmm. And then for getting into something more, I have some experience and I wanna work with a rehabilitator, Generally, your state fish and game will have a list of all of the rehabilitators in the state. If they do birds, they have to have a federal permit as well, but the state generally keeps track of who is licensed to rehabilitate wildlife. And so you can just go down that list and see if there's anybody in the area. Rehabilitators often legally have to be working with a veterinarian, and most of them have a hard time finding a veterinarian to work with. So if you're interested, I guarantee you will only have to contact a few people <laughs> before you find somebody that's like, oh my gosh, you want to help? You're amazing. And it's a ton of fun. And if you get into it and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, that's when people like me and my center come in. We love talking to vets and fielding questions and helping people out in the community because we want more vets to get involved in wildlife rehab and work with wildlife rehabilitators to help our wildlife. So, you know, we're here for you and, and able to help you out whenever you need it. That's so great. And now I'll call you with all my wildlife questions. There you go. <laughs> While you've got spare time from your 18,000 patients. If you can text me, then I can usually multitask. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good skill. Thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot because I'm from Australia and have had nothing to do with wildlife here. Um, mm -hmm. And it's clearly very different, but also it's interesting hearing the similarities. Yeah, I'm sure I would be a fish out of water in Australia. I'd be like, what is that? <laughs> Just a lot of pouches. 
but also a lot of birds. Thank you so much. That was Yeah, lovely. thanks for having me. This yeah. was fun. And for people looking for further information on the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center of Minnesota, check out the website at www.wrcmn.org. For information on the use of alfaxa alone in turtles and other minor species, see the alfaxa and multidose IDX resources on Think Anesthesia and the Jurox website.